0: You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. Lecture 15. This lecture will be devoted to the beginnings, at least, of Chapter 3. It is a chapter of Veritatis Splendor that is entitled, using a text from St. Paul, 1 Corinthians 17, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's a wonderful phrase, and Pope John Paul II uses it as the title for this entire chapter, writing as he does, especially to his fellow bishops, but also to the likes of us, wanting us to understand The significance of this moral theology that we have been studying and the significance for our own lives for the effect that our freely chosen actions make upon us as well as on those others who are affected and the way in which we can manage or fail to serve God thereby. He will be considering this all from the pastoral point of view now. If I might go back to one of the comments I made at the very beginning of this series I'm impressed that the Catechism of the Catholic Church takes up the ancient Christian tradition of the Four Senses of Scripture. You remember there is a literal sense, what the human author under divine inspiration intended, and three spiritual senses, namely the typological, sometimes called the allegorical, the way in which we try to model ourselves on Christ who completes and perfects and sanctifies what is incomplete and imperfect and unholy uh, about the life of Israel or about our own lives, Christ tries to fix it. Secondly, there is the moral sense in which we can learn from various texts of Scripture what the moral implications are, what God's will is through divine law, through natural law. And thirdly, there is an anagogical sense that the way to get home, sometimes sacramental, often just pastoral. It strikes me that the rich young man story by itself in the Gospels is that literal sense. And that chapter one brought out in many ways the typological sense, that is, showing us Christ's relation with the rich young man, managing to unpack and disclose various aspects of morality through seeing how the very person of Christ calls and summons us to truly moral living. The second chapter, which we have been exploring for many lectures now, engages in the discovery and the discussion of the moral sense of Scripture, making constant use of revelation, but reflecting on it and drawing out the implications for good moral living, but especially for correcting certain erroneous trends in modern moral theology. Now, finally, in this third chapter, we have something akin to the anagogical sense, namely, how do we encourage people to use this? How does the Pope, use this to encourage the bishops. How, in a way, are we encouraged and exhorted and brought to undertake the way of life that we are expected and to the kind of thinking that is required? And so in a certain sense, by an analogy, we have in the final chapter something like the anagogical sense of Scripture. He will use much Scripture here. He begins, for instance, at paragraph 84 with a line from Galatians, the first verse of chapter 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. No surprise, given John Paul II, perhaps the most free man of the entire 20th century, one who could see, even in the enforced servitude of his own experience of Poland under Nazi domination, and then later under communist domination, who nonetheless could see even in the most humble work he had to do and the things that he had to undertake and suffer, he could see possibilities, and when he returned 30 years later as Pope and set and unleashed and set loose the revolution, the bloodless revolution that overthrew the whole communist system, he was free to see possibilities where sometimes others could only see the present conditions in their enslavement. He uses as his title for the first part of chapter 3, For Freedom Christ Has Set Us Free. And what he does is to remind us of that main thesis of Veritata Splendor. The relation between freedom and the moral law is very much a matter of the relation between freedom and truth. His ethics is built on a certain vision of the truth about the human person, about the truth of God and the way reality is as a whole. And so in the relation between freedom and truth, seeing what the human person really is, and how every single human being, without exception, without regard to ability or functioning, is a human being made in the image and likeness of God, that person has a dignity, and to remind people of that dignity will start them on the road to holiness that can come through moral living. But what is the problem? He reminds his fellow bishops in this pastoral chapter That much of the chaos of modern society, much of the confusion on the intellectual and social landscape, comes from a confusion about the truths of human nature, the truths of human personhood. Many people simply do not know who they are, do not know that they are made in the image and likeness of God and are loved by God, and that God wants them truly to be happy with Him in the next world, happy with Him forever in heaven. And by being forgetful of that or not ever having been shown it, they live a life that is confused and often undertake actions that are self-destructive. And so throughout this third chapter, the Pope is making his earnest plea that bishops, priests, that all of us who are attentive to this start talking about it, start focusing and helping other people to understand. It's why I'm so grateful to have this opportunity for this lecture series on Very to Splendor. Because at least part of the resolution of the problems that we face will come with coming to know and to understand who we are, those who are loved by God because made in his image, so much so that he sent his son to redeem us. They engage instead in self-destructive behavior and in behavior that is often contemptuous of human life. In a way, there's a skepticism there not knowing and not believing that there is a real meaning to human existence. Likewise, there is a deep relativism that is set in, and here at the beginning of his pastoral chapter, Pope John Paul II weighs in with the bishops and urges them to confront the relativism. He finds in his own version, his own way of stating it, is that a lot of people in our present age are simply no longer convinced that only in the truth one can find salvation. When he says that in paragraph 84, he's making a really remarkable statement. He is thinking, of course, that we need Christ to show us the truth about the human person, but he is also convinced that even for those who do not know Christ, who live in some other culture, who live in some other religion or in some other state, he is mindful that many are no longer convinced that only in the truth one can find salvation. This of course is an enormously complicated question, and I'm not going to try to resolve it here, but I do want to at least mention it. One of the questions that is often raised, and rightly raised, is, is there salvation in any other name than Jesus? Is there salvation outside the church? We of course are clear from the Gospel that there is salvation only in the name of Jesus. One is mindful in the Catechism, paragraphs 846 to 848, for example, that the Church does still continue to hold the position, there is no salvation outside the Church. But paragraphs 846 to 848 make clear in a very interesting way what we must understand by those lines. Paragraph 846, for instance, directs us to remember what the command of Christ to his apostles and their successors and to all of us is about evangelization. The church must go and spread the gospel to all the world. Christ gave the church a duty, a duty of evangelization, a duty of missionary work, a duty that we may not in any way fail to at least attempt. I think of in Pope Francis in his first apostolic exhortation, Evangelii Gaudium, the joy of the gospel, that in many ways what Pope Francis is doing is urging us to a new and reinvigorated evangelization, to a new missionary work. If anything, I think he is trying to counter some of the perhaps unanticipated results of a fellow Jesuit, Karl Rahner, whose idea of the anonymous Christian In ways that I I just can't imagine that Rahner envisioned, sapped the missionary energy of the Church. If everyone is already an anonymous Christian, why should we bother to go and evangelize them? Clearly, Pope Francis is taking just the opposite stand, remembering and urging the urgency of the gospel, namely that we must go and evangelize all we must seek their baptism. That's paragraph 846 of the Catechism. But then paragraphs 847 and 848 comment on the fact that God is not bound by the commands that he gives to the Church. And this is the Catechism's way of expressing in paragraphs 847 and 848 that if God chooses to save a pagan who has never heard of Jesus Christ because that pagan is operating according to his own lights in ways that are respectful of morality and the dignity of the person, God may choose to save that person. Interestingly, the Catechism is not presumptuous. It is not saying, therefore, that person will be saved. We don't know that. It is not saying, therefore, that person will be damned. We don't know that. What the Catechism is saying is, if God chooses to save that person because God can know the conscience of that person, then perhaps, as John Paul II has expressed it, there is a truth and in the truth one can find salvation i allow that paragraphs 847 and 848 discuss that possibility not being presumptuous either way it makes a very delicate statement what john paul ii i think is doing is reinforcing some of that same position that the council had ta- that the catechism takes and that the second vatican council takes and insisting that the truth is a truth about man, and that it will be very, very difficult to spot the fullness of the truth about man without the light of Jesus Christ. And so I suspect that what he means in this sentence in paragraph 84, people are no longer convinced that only in the truth can one find salvation. I think he is meaning two things. I think he is meaning truth with a capital T, the truth that is Jesus, as when Jesus says, I am the way, and the truth, and the life, and only in Jesus as the truth can they find salvation. But in John Paul II's mind, I think, from my reading of Veritas de Splendor, he is very much emphasizing that there is a truth about the person, the human person, because we are made in the image and likeness of God, and that the Word of God is the image and likeness of his Father. We are made in that image, and there is still enough about us that we can at least get some glimmer of the truth whose fullness will only be radiant with the light of Christ. A person who at least honors that truth, the truth about the moral life, the truth that is available to us through the natural law, at least to a certain great extent, even if not in its fullness, the person who honors that at least has the hope of salvation. Here, John Paul II in paragraph 84 strikes me as very much resonant with the... paragraphs 846 to 848 and other passages of the Catechism, which talk about this. He also mentions in paragraph 84, here in the text of Veritatis Splendor, the way in which so many in our own day really lack trust in the wisdom of God for guiding us through the moral law. This is one of the sad parts about some aspects of scriptural theology. One finds any number of people who try to deconstruct the scriptures or who try to rewrite it I find it particularly uh, difficult to deal with those who want to say that the Scriptures, simply because they were written at a certain period of time by an author who lived at a certain period of time, were only reflecting the values of that period of time. I think that the nature of what the Scriptures say quickly gives the lie to that. For the Scriptures are forever, constantly and again and again, honing themselves to Christ who tells us things that went very much at odds with the prevailing thought of the culture. If we were just to restrict ourselves to chapter 19 of Matthew, about which Pope John Paul II has made so much use in the course of Veritatis Splendor, there in the discussion about marriage, when the, some of the individuals with whom he was talking were citing to him what Moses had allowed, divorce and remarriage, Pope John Paul II quotes Jesus in Matthew 19 as saying, Yes, Moses did allow it because of the hardness of hearts, but in the beginning it was not so. And by that recurrent phrase, in the beginning, Jesus is indicating the normative stature, the normative status of God's plan for the truth about the human person and showing us yet again that God in his wisdom gave us a moral law that truly is capable of guiding us, And so, for instance, the commandment against adultery directs us really and truly to honor the marriages we make, that as persons capable of making a free act and a free commitment, we are indeed in the position of giving ourselves with a totality to another that another can trust. We are mindful that sometimes there may be violent situations or situations of such dishonesty and deceit that parties may no longer be able to live together, and so we understand the sadness of those who must separate perhaps even legally separate, and yet there can be no permission to remarry if there was a valid marriage, hence the great care of the annulment processes. Our effort is, of course, to tend to the person and to tend to the weakness of the person, especially the weakness of our freedom and the weakness with which we sometimes make our commitments and our promises. And yet, the dignity of the person resides in precisely the way in which God has made us, with a reason, with free choice of the will, And so we must indeed honor those commitments that were freely and voluntarily made. And the purpose of the moral law is to have us remember that kind of dignity. At paragraph 85, in his pastoral care, Pope John Paul II displays his sense of the church's real concern with these matters. Namely, that the concern that he himself is trying to show in Veritatis Splendor is not only to denounce the errors, he's done that very clearly, but also, and he urges his fellow bishops in this, to help the faithful to form the consciences of those under their care. He wants bishops really truly to have a sense of their magisterial obligations. They are the teaching authority of the church, and the church has not just a right, but a duty to form consciences. If the church were not exercising her various abilities to form consciences, the church would not be doing her duty. Individual bishops, individual priests. It is why sometimes we must preach in an appropriate way, on even the most difficult topics, and to shy away from them always is to be wimpish. Rather we must find ways to make the truth clear and attractive, because ultimately the truth is the truth and will be persuasive. But in doing so we must honor the obligations that the Lord has conferred upon his apostles and their successors and all those who would help them in the Episcopal ministry. To again, buck us up, Pope John Paul II mentions yet another quotation from St. Paul, and I think you'll see how prominent St. Paul is throughout this chapter. Here he's citing Romans chapter 12, verse 2, let me read it. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may prove what is the will will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In quoting that line from St. Paul's letter to the Romans, he is urging his fellow bishops to have the courage of their office. There's an interesting word in Latin that designates some of this. It's the word munus. I confess I, I found myself reading over in Latin the text of Pope Benedict's letter of abdication. And within just a paragraph, he managed to use that word munus, the same word that John Paul II is engaged with here, four times. In Latin, munus can mean a burden. Benedict had described his increasing age and vulnerability as a a munus, a burden. And he found it a vulnerability or a burden in trying to carry out the munus, that is, the duty that he had as chief shepherd, and to carry out that munis that is the duty because it is a part of the office that he had as chief shepherd, just like the bishops all have some of that same duty within their office, also using the word munis. And then all of this was a gift because it was divinely assisted. And again, Latin uses the word munis for gift. Burden, duty, office, gift. And Benedict, with his masterful Latin, had put all of those into his short letter of abdication to try to reflect upon the way in which he had experienced the papacy. Here, I think John Paul II is mindful of that when he is thinking in a very strong sense of the way in which his fellow bishops and himself have this munus. They have a burden. They have to sometimes teach even on topics that are difficult because it is part of the duty that comes from their office, being the shepherds, and they can trust in the gift of God. But then, John Paul goes on to quote the munus regale, this royal munus, royal gift, which is over the whole people, because he is so mindful that each of us, not just the shepherds, but each one of us has also the obligation that comes from being Christian, from having the duties that come to work at personal holiness and the ways in which living the moral life and understanding what the duties of conscience are Help us to live with this munus regale, this royal gift and royal duty that having a conscience imposes upon us. When John Paul starts to quote St. Paul like this, <clears throat> and he does so a number of times in the course of this chapter, I find myself he, he's honoring in a way his name, John Paul, but he's also thinking about the way in which St. Paul carried himself in this matter. A few years ago, during the year of St. Paul, I think it was 2008, I found myself taking on the task of rereading the whole of the letters of St. Paul. If you've never done it, I strongly urge it for you, or perhaps to find a course on it, so that you can do it in the organized fashion that a course makes possible. Here's what I discovered, and I think it's very germane to chapter 3. In all of the big letters of St. Paul, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, in all of those thematic letters, there's a very interesting common structure. The first half gives a Christology, a picture of Christ, and their various aspects. For instance, Christ's pouring himself out in Philippians, or perhaps Christ as the head of the mystical body. Or in Romans, Christ as the one who makes the new covenant full and complete, permanent, as a way to complete the earlier covenants of the Old Testament. In the first half, there's a picture of Christ. And in the second half of those letters, there are the ethical implications, like the ones that John Paul II is now drawing on. And whether it be the chapter 12, chapter 13 of Romans bringing out the ethical implications of the new covenant, or whether it be something like Ephesians in chapters 4, 5, and 6 bringing out the implications for family life, each of the letters of St. Paul gives a specific Christology and then follows with the ethical implications. And then, not only in those thematic letters, but even in the more punchy and personal letters, the things that are directed to an individual like Timothy or Titus, the things that are directed to a given community and are St. Paul yelling and screaming at some of the abuses that took place in those communities, like maybe parts of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, St. Paul always remembers to put the moral obligation as a way of imitating Christ. When I think, for instance, of Paul on the practical side, here are his great themes. The absolute obligation to practice practical charity, not just some theoretical version, but finding the practical things to do. The importance of fraternal correction, the way in which we have to undertake the sacrifice of daring, in appropriate ways and with appropriate reserve, daring to correct someone who's going wrong and bringing back a soul to Christ. And then thirdly, hugely important, learning how to bear one another's burdens, even as Christ bore our burdens, and as Simeon had to go and help Christ carry his cross. Paul, in his very distinctive ways, is urging this practical charity and the various obligations of morality as ways of living out our discipleship in Christ. John Paul II, in quoting St. Paul so often, is focusing on this as the way to live the life, and he is encouraging his bishops to speak about this often and strongly. John Paul II remarks in paragraph 85, when we do this, we will know the real secret of the Church's moral teaching, because the real secret and power of this teaching doesn't come from documents, even great documents like Very Taught to Splendor. The real secret and power of this teaching, while it can be talked about in great documents and needs to be, the real secret and power is precisely in the person of Christ, learning how to look to the Lord Jesus, as Paul did. And that's why I stress that in the opening half of each of those great thematic letters, there is a meditation on the person of Christ and bringing out this or that or some third aspect. So too for John Paul, in his Redemptor Hominis and in some of those early encyclicals, it was looking on the person of Christ as a way to show us what the truth about human nature and humanity is. This is also the case for us, whether it be that we are engaged in suffering, and like salvifici Dolorus have to look upon the face of the crucified Christ to understand how to suffer, or whether it's a matter of looking on Christ and dealing with the rich young man, as we find in Matthew chapter 19 and at the core of the first chapter of *Veritatis Splendor. It is looking on the Lord Jesus and especially look upon the crucified Christ. And there, John Paul II urges, there we will find <coughs> the one who reveals the authentic meaning of human existence, and the authentic meaning of freedom to us. When John Paul looked upon that crucifix, on the crucified Christ, what he saw there is someone who is the very epitome of self-gift, one who did not need to die for his sins, but who chooses to die for the likes of us, one who is willing to accept all of the humiliations of suffering. I was recently visiting a person in a nursing home back in New York, and she is very mortified by the way in which she has to live now, for in her advanced stage, age, and in the particular debility, she's no longer even able to to really control some of her bowel movements. And it's a sad thing, because she feels very humiliated and shamed. And yet the last time I was there, I was so edified, she told me she was doing the Stations of the Cross, and it occurred to her that part of the shame of the cross was not only Jesus' nakedness being nailed there for all to see, and with the intention to humiliate him by the soldiers and the way in which they strung him up, but also the way in which he probably had little control of some of his bodily functions. She was identifying with Christ on the cross. She was doing the very thing that John Paul II, I think, is focusing on, namely, looking upon the crucified Christ, in a way I confess I had never thought to reflect on that particular aspect of the cross, but she was able to look upon Jesus crucified and to see in him someone who is making the total gift of himself, whose freedom consisted in being nailed. One doesn't think of being nailed to a cross as an experience of freedom. But for John Paul II, this, in fact, gives us the authentic meaning of freedom, not claiming lots of power and prerogative for himself, but rather mocked as a king and wearing a crown of thorns, losing even control of some of his bodily functions as he endures the time until his death, trusting in his father, and even when he feels some of the anguish, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, and begins to recite that psalm, Nonetheless, he can return to the rest of the psalm, perhaps sotto voce, hardly able even to be heard, and to make his act of trust and his act of surrender, in all of these circumstances, however, humiliating, he is the one who will teach us the meaning of freedom at its deepest level, namely, the total self-gift that he himself gave. For John Paul II, in meditating on it, still here within paragraph 85, what he does is to suggest that those who would imitate Christ's whether by the great sacrifice of martyrdom like his, or perhaps whether by the somewhat more usual daily sacrifices, even when things are very difficult because we know what the moral law requires and we know how the moral law will be the path of holiness designed by a God who knew our condition because he had made it and who knew that these laws would in fact be something that would uphold and enhance dignity if we will observe them. John Paul sees in the history of those who imitate Christ, in the actual martyrs that are recorded in Old Testament and New, and then are recorded in the history of the church, he sees in them a pattern and a set of examples of those who do regard the church's norms as universal and unchanging, for they are the very conditions of freedom, not a threat to human freedom. As St. Augustine said, and as John Paul II quoted back in paragraph 13 of Veritat to Splendor, to stay away from crimes by observing the commandments, not killing, not committing adultery, not thieving, not bearing false witness, and so on, that those various commandments which are universal and unchanging and that apply always and everywhere, those are the very conditions in which we can begin to be free because anything that we will choose to do will be in accord with the dignity that we have as made in the image and likeness of God and capable of making free decisions, and will be able to bring us, by virtue of those decisions, by the salvation that comes from living in accord with that truth, to what our real goal and end is, eternal union with God. Hence the commandments, even when they bind us, in ways that we don't find pleasant or accommodating, in ways that we might well find constraining at a certain level, they actually are not a threat to our freedom, but are the very conditions of our freedom. John Paul II talks about this with a full sense of the weakness of our will, the fact that we want to do the right thing, but we find it hard. Even as Peter, when he got up into the garden, excuse me, up into the place, the courtyard, where Jesus was being held, Peter found it hard To live out his promise. And yet the very fact that his failings get recorded in the Gospel come, I think, from Peter's insistence with the Gospel writers. You must be sure to put that in. I know I failed the Lord, and yet I know that he freed me. Peter insists that the passage of his failure get in the pages of the Gospel, and also the way in which Christ shows mercy to him, there on the seashore after Easter, when he asks Peter three times, do you love me? And when Peter affirms it with increasing sense of agitation, Jesus can give him yet another task and yet another part of his vocation. He has forgiven Peter for his weakness and would now strengthen him to give that gift of himself that would eventually lead Peter to the cross. John Paul II's entire message here in chapter 3, and we'll see a little bit more of it in the next and final lecture, his message is, is that Following out the universal and unchanging norms are our way of being faithful to the one who was willing to be crucified for us and he urges his fellow bishops to remember the call and the summons to fidelity and perhaps even to martyrdom. We'll see more about that in the next lecture. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org/donate to help us keep this content free.